<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 468. Happy New Year. My name's Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, I'm not a therapist. The show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Um, did you survive the holidays? You know what it's, is even harder for me than the holidays is when the sun sets in the winter, especially between Thanksgiving and Christmas when it's like four o'clock outside and especially if it's cloudy there's there it just feels like like a physical representation of everything I've failed at in my life especially if it's a day when I didn't get anything done I slept too late I didn't eat enough I'm back in bed two hours after I woke up it's just it 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 feels like like if death put on a show this would be the lighting for death to make its entrance i'm so looking forward to the days getting getting longer uh i want to read an email that i got um this was somebody writing in reference to the episode with gobby dixon uh, and they write, Hey, Paul, I was just about to listen to the new episode. Started to read the description of the show. You refer to the guest, and then in parentheses, could be male, hard to say, based on the photos. As they, as opposed to her or him. If this is the direction we're going, I'm getting off this ride. I will ne never refer to one person as a they. It doesn't compute. I'm usually pretty open-minded. Usually, but the new generation has lost me with this not choosing to be a male or female business, and I think you're starting to bend way too much to get listeners. Yes, I'm using an alias and fake email address, so call me gutless if you must. Whatever, I'm just pretty fucking damn disappointed in the show the last few episodes, but it won't affect your bottom line since I never contribute financially. I've only been a regular listener since 2012. 
there's so much there. There's so much there. Where, where do I even start? I don't want to waste too much time sharing my thoughts on this, but I emailed her back and said, my thought is that it's not about it computing for us. It's about how it computes for them. And if you feel that using different pronouns is inconvenient, I would ask you to imagine how inconvenient it must be for them to live in a world that thinks they just want to create a hassle for, for people by wanting to not be defined in one box or the other. End of thought. Uh, today's episode is a little uh, intense. Some of the surveys are a little intense. Um, just want to—I never know when to to give a warning. This show is a gigantic trigger warning, so I don't know. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself Floating Mass, and her description of having a panic attack, a panic attack, and trying to hide it is. It was like forcing a bowling ball down my throat. God, so, so good. I only had a panic attack once, and I was alone, but it was enough to make me never, ever want to have one again. This is from the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Awkward Side Hug and about her anorexia. She writes, if there's less of me, then maybe there will be less of me to hate about self-harm. It hurts less than feeling everything and nothing at the same time. That one blew my mind because that is such an accurate description when we're feeling that feeling that's almost impossible to describe. It's an emptiness, but it's also feeling overwhelmed at the same time. And then a snapshot from her life. I wrote down a list of emotions that I keep next to my bed so I can try to make sense of what I feel. Irritated, sad, resentful, hopeful, elated, lonely. To me, feelings are either good or bad. There is no color to them. I'm exhausted trying to figure them out. When people ask, how are you, I legitimately don't know how to respond. My favorite answer is busy. At least it's not usually a lie. Thank you so much for that survey. I so relate to the not knowing how to respond when somebody asks me how I'm doing. I always feel like I don't know. And that's what I should say. I should say I don't know unless I'm feeling great, in which case I would happily say I'm doing, I'm doing great. I feel great. Uh, and when I'm feeling bad, sometimes I'll say, do you really want to know? And I'll, they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, I'm struggling. And then they run. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself B. Oh, this is so awful. She writes, I went to see a lawyer for custody of my son, walked into the lawyer's office to see his family photos, and realized his son raped me in high school. Unfucking believable I cried and then laughed all the way home. That is the definition of awful Thank you for sharing that. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Dr. My Eyes. And she writes, um, there's actually two moments. 
uh, the first one, the look of sheer joy and surprise on my kids' faces when I sneak into the house after work without them seeing me and they suddenly notice I am home. Nothing can make me feel more loved. That's so beautiful. And there's a second one. I never have time for myself, but I recently had a couple hours of free time after taking the day off work to take an exam. I went shopping with no children hanging all over me or knocking displays over and bought myself a cupcake to boot. I was living the epitome of adulthood that I pictured when I was a little kid. Being an adult means eating a cupcake whenever you damn well please. Ah, love it. Love it. One of our sponsors for today uh, and every week is betterhelp.com online counseling. If you have never tried online counseling, it's I'm a I'm a huge fan. I've been doing it for a couple of years and I love not having to leave my house. I love the the rapport and the trust that I have in the relationship I I have with my counselor. Uh I trust her absolutely and she really helps guide me through the issues that constantly come up in my life so if you want to try betterhelp.com go to betterhelp.com slash mental make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast and then fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com i had too much coffee i apologize my hands are also shaking uh, go to, they'll match you with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. And, uh, you also don't have to do your sessions via, uh, video. You can do them via email, uh, live text, chat, phone. And then this is where I would normally insert nine other jokes about old timey ways of communicating. Uh, we also have a new sponsor for this week, and uh, I am excited to introduce their stuff to you guys because I am a fan. Um, I'm sure you've heard all about CBD uh, and stuff like that. When they approached me about potentially advertising on the show, I said, I know that there are CBD products that have THC, and there are those that don't have any THC, and I would only be comfortable advertising those that don't have THC in them, ones used for medicinal purposes, you know, be it uh, struggles with sleep or pain or anxiety. And I've tried a couple of uh, different brands previously uh, with very kind of mixed results. And they said, well, why don't you try some of our, our products before we talk more about this? And I decided to try their nighttime gummies. And I've been using them now for, I don't know, maybe three weeks or more, and they work fucking great. It, it is so nice having something that I know is going to put me to sleep and not having that anxiety of, am I going to fall asleep? Am I not going to fall asleep? So if you're considering checking out CPD stuff, uh, go to earlybirdcbd.com. It's a completely transparent online CBD marketplace, and they can help you find the right product. Uh, you can check out different products that they have on the website, or if you want to, you can even call them and talk to a customer care person who will answer any questions you have and help you find the right product. Um, they carry top quality manufacturers that are extensively tested for safety and potency. 
and they have the best pricing online, and each order includes fast and free shipping. So you guys can get 20% off your first order by going to earlybirdcbd.com slash mental and use the discount code mental for, again, as I said, 20% off your first order. That's earlybirdcbd.com slash mental with discount code mental for 20% off your first order. And I'll put the links, uh, as always, to the stuff I mention under the show notes for uh, for the episode. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And then one more thing before we get to the uh, interview with Ellen Blackcloud. These are some loves, or a love, filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself G-L-O-R-I-A, as in the song. Uh, Gracie's come in. Gracie wants to hear this love. I love moments of rapture when you're suddenly taken out of yourself by a seemingly small occurrence. For example, years ago, I was walking through the graveyard near my house. It's the tallest point in town. So when you're up there, you get a 360-degree view of the mountains surrounding you. I was there because I was very troubled, processing my emotions about the relationship I was in that was emotionally abusive and fraught with infidelity on my end. I sat on the grass completely morose then looked beside me and noticed a raindrop held on the tip of a piece of grass. I leaned down to observe it and was completely enraptured in its simple beauty. All my negative thoughts and feelings suddenly dispersed, and I was suspended in this surreal moment, transfixed by this tiny orb that seemed so intrinsically perfect. I love those fleeting moments. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. 
I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world, everyone feels pain. Then it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and let them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with Ellen Blackcloud, which uh, she is using as a pseudonym um, because you want to be able to speak freely. You're a Native American and you're how old? I am 46. 46. And your life today is nothing like it used to be. You've been sober for 10 years. Yes. Um, but we're going to talk about what it used to be like. And I would also like to talk about all of this kind of through the lens of the history of Native American struggles and the ups and downs or what whatever words would apply to the um, changes and how that community views itself, views the outside world, especially its customs and language and how they feel about themselves. And I I understand it's not a monolithic thing that right. you can say everybody is this way, but in general, yes, um, you were raised uh, on a reservation. Yes. Well, you know, just tell me your tell me your story. Um, well, I uh, was born. Um, on a reservation, and my whole family lived there. Um, we. In which state was this? Would this you prefer in, not to say which reservation? Oh no, that's. I, I'd prefer not to. Okay. Um, a western state. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, my family was uh, very poor. Um, we had a um, adobe house. Um, we didn't have running water. Um, we had an outhouse and. This was pretty much in the 70s, um, if you can <laughs> kind of relate it to the rest of the world, uh, puts things in perspective. What, um, do, what do Native American platform shoes look like? Platform shoes? <laughs> <laughs> They're just feet. <laughs> yes. That was my lame attempt at humor. <laughs> um, so I pretty much grew up um, with in a family with my mom, my brother, older brother, who was four years older, is four years older than me, and my grandfather. Um, my father really wasn't in the picture with us. Um, he was living within the community. He happened to be the husband of my aunt, and so you guys, you guys slow down because part of my brain is still going back to the joke I made about the platform shoes and feeling <laughs> like a terrible person because of course they're they're just like everybody else's platform shoes. But I was I was. Uh, you mean with the fish in in them? <laughs> the Elton John platform <laughs> shoes. Yes. No, I was just uh, <laughs> trying to be silly, but I I worry that it came across as. You guys are like Martians, and <laughs> and um, and no, so, no, I and, didn't take it that okay. way. Yeah, yeah, but there, there, I well, I think there are so many differences. 
um, in the way that I grew up. And I, I think there are a lot of uh, kids who grow up on the res who can kind of relate. There's, there's um, relate to relate to the way that I grew up. Okay, and I think we have a lot of similarities in like this our sense of humor and how we talk relate about to that. another. That's a great subject to to talk about. Can you expand on that as much as possible? Well. In our community and others, I, I see that um, we like to joke around. Um, we don't take things too seriously. And we like to tease each other and just have fun, no matter who you're talking to in your community. And sometimes when you apply that type of interaction to other people, like someone who is non-native, mm-hmm. they don't always get it. They get a little <clears throat> defensive or... They don't want to deal with you. I'm not all the time. Some of the time, they don't really know how to take it because I don't know. Maybe they're not used to it, or or do you think maybe they're they're like, oh, she's going after the white man? Yeah, I think there's some of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, when I when I was in uh, when I was growing up, there, I faced a lot of discrimination, and I'm. Sh- every time I talk to other natives, they have similar stories. Can you can you share some that you? can recall um well in school uh kids used to call call us names um like engines or um dirty indians and when i was in high school um and what was the percentage of native americans in your school probably about 40 percent growing up um and we we had a small community and we had a small town, and so we pretty much grew up with these people. So obviously they lived right next to the reservation. Yeah, and it wasn't like everyone treated us that way. It was just a few people, but it, it really sticks with you when you experience it from a young age. What, do you remember what you would think or feel in those in those moments? I would feel angry. Um. In high school, some of my teachers, well, one in particular, would tell us that um, we were dumb Indians, we should go back to our reservations because that's where we belong, and that will never amount to anything. You've got to be kidding me. No, that was... How is that person not fired? I don't know. I mean, we... My friends and I felt like we couldn't say anything. And I think part of the reason why I didn't really speak up for myself when I was younger is because my mom is just such a polite person. She never wanted to have confrontations with people. Um, She was always, she is always courteous, kind, respectful to others, even when they disrespect her. And that kind of goes back to how there was a shift in our family from loving, caring, looking out for each other to a more abusive relationship when she met this person. But I'll get into that. Okay. Um, So the commonalities. So um, being uh, verbally humiliated. Mm-hmm. Um, what are what are some other forms of discrimination that were common for people you knew? 
or people you didn't know? Well, what I hear a lot from people is that um, people ask, like non-natives ask questions. God, I hope I'm not that person. No, 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 not at all. They ask if we grew up in teepees or we still live in the teepee. Wow. <laughs> Even to this day. Wow. So they have no clue. Did as you scalp to... them? <laughs> That's why we did it. <laughs> ask me a stupid question again. <laughs> Well, yeah, so they, and, and another way that I feel like people discriminated us, against us is that they think that there is one view, that we all have one view that we're so connected to yeah. nature. And in some ways that's true, but when you take it away from us, it really, it makes me angry that people look at us that way like oh and part of it is um because that's the way they've been trained mm -hmm. they don't and a lot of times they don't have to interact with a lot of different cultures and so they just don't know what to think so i know there there is still a lot of ignorance in in people and the way they were raised so i don't always look at questions like were you were you born in a teepee or do you live in a teepee as a bad thing because if they're asking out of sheer curiosity mm -hmm. then i'm happy to just tell them how it is yeah, for me the and others behind it isn't malicious right if they ask that question as a joke or they're trying to put me in a place in their minds to fit into their stereotype, then that is That's when true. I get upset. Did did you feel uncomfortable when I made the scalping no, joke? No. Okay. No. I know that you're a worldly guy. Okay. <laughs> you're not making that type of joke to okay. hurt me or insult me. Okay. I don't take it that way. Okay. Yeah. As, as you know... I like to inject levity yes. where I can, and um, I sometimes wonder, do I make the, the guest uncomfortable and they just don't say anything? Because I assume that um, w when someone comes in here that knows the podcast, because you are a listener, yes. I assume that they know my intent is to let what's in their soul be heard by other people, right. and sometimes inject a little humor into the darkness. Right. I have never thought that your humor was offensive in any of the podcasts, okay. So, but Thanks. you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> you do listen. <laughs> you do listen. So um, people looking at the Native community as if it, it's this monolithic thing, um, you're getting asked the questions sometimes, with malicious intent, sometimes just out of ignorance and curiosity. Yes. Anything more there or uh, other commonalities that, that you share? Well, I think there's a commonality in um, just how we understand each other. A lot of us, um, well, the people that I've talked to that are Native, they've some of them have been, like me, have been poor and 
um, just we're really close to our families. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and when I was growing up, since we didn't have money, we had to rely on government food, um, which we called rations. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some people have food stamps and, you know, we had rations. My mom didn't want to get food stamps when we were growing up because she was too proud for that, even though we didn't have any money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and were so we got rations. That, were there times that you went hungry? Yeah. Um, she always provided for us, no matter what. But, yeah, there were times when we didn't really have anything to eat. And Can you recall so, any of those and talk about what it felt like? Well, I felt, to me, it kind of, I felt less than other people. I knew I was different um, because we grew up on the food that we got from the garden, too. So we grew up on squash and beans and um, melons that my grandfather grew for us. And he was always outside in the garden. And uh, that's just how it was. And we went to the grocery store once a month because my grandfather also had um, social security income. And so we we had food, but it wasn't like some of the things that I have now. I mean, um, I don't know if this is going off the subject, but I have this thing where I look at things and say, "Oh, that's a white thing." Mm-hmm. Like one, t- my my one of my teachers in I'm elementary so school. <laughs> this interview is over. I can't stand another boot on my neck. As a straight white male, I've had enough of the tweets. I'm sorry, cis straight white male. <laughs> and it's only been five minutes. <laughs> yeah. I, there was uh, uh, somebody one time, I can't remember who it was, but there was a, a somebody in the public eye had said they're so tired of hearing about racism, and I think it was John Stewart or Stephen Colbert that said, imagine how tired people are of experiencing it. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> but, but go ahead. <laughs> um, when I was in elementary school, one of our teachers, uh, who happened to be white, brought in... Um, an empty can of, I think it was diamond almonds, or I can't remember mm-hmm. them. And she brought it in for a project that we were doing. I can't remember what it was, but I had never seen that. I had never eaten it. I never didn't really know what it was. I mean, I didn't never experienced eating that before. And so now, as an adult, every time I see that, I think about that person because when I was a kid, that was a white thing to me because that was something we didn't have. So if there are other cases like that, like... And was it based on culture or money? I think both. Okay. Yeah. Um, the same thing with Legos and <laughs> those type of things. I Or, you know, Toys R Us. Mm-hmm. I see that as a white thing because that was something that I couldn't have for lack of money, but it was also a lot of kids in the community didn't have those things. They didn't have a lot of the popular toys that you can just 
get. I remember there were a lot of toys that I wanted when I was a kid that I just didn't have. I would beg my mom and not get it because we didn't have it. But the one, I made do with what we did have. I was going to say the one thing you can safely know as a white person thing is brunch. Yeah. <laughs> that I know came from us. The rest we stole from black culture. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, there are just a lot of different little things that my husband is a non-native, and he teases me about that from time to time because he'll talk about his childhood. Mm -hmm. And he was a middle, came from a middle-class family in the Midwest, and, oh, we had... Three Christmases, because we had, you know, our parents were divorced, and so we went from here to here to here, and we came up with these bags of toys, and I'm like, we had one toy. <laughs> or it's there's just such a difference, and then he kind of teases me, because he, he has got a great sense of humor. He's basically yeah. like one of us, and, yeah. you know, that was maybe that was one of the things that really drew me to him. Um, he has a great sense of humor. But there are times when I start talking about it, and he's like, oh, here we go again, <laughs> which is funny. <laughs> when you hear someone from uh, an oppressed community share about maybe poverty or something else, do you feel a kinship to that person? For instance, someone from the um, black community or the Latino community yes. or... Yes, I do. Because as you were sharing about the having one toy, I thought there's a lot of non-natives that had one toy right, you know, growing right. up too. Right. Not um, to minimize your thing. But, oh no, yeah. no, no, no. I, yeah, I, I do uh, see similarities in other cultures as well, um, especially um, human rights that are being violated by police all over the country and. I see, you, you know, he had all these um, protests of uh, people that were fed up with kids getting shot, black kids getting shot by police. And I get that. I've felt that. I feel that anger for that injustice. I feel like I've always had a problem with being a native and living in this white society. So I take a little bit of what I learned living amongst white people and other cultures. And a lot of what I learned growing up with my grandfather and my mom and learning about how things were and how we should be as people and so it's when you talk about like activism mm -hmm. i'm not that type of a person my perception of people within my community is that there are those people that are hard activists they want to go back to the old way they don't want anything to do with anything to do with white people and white people's customs or houses or ways of life and I can understand that but then they're contradictory they're in the meantime they're they're living on the reservation in government homes and 
you know, they're taking advantage of these things, but then they're denouncing the government and their own community members and everyone else around them for doing the same thing. And so I don't know how to explain that, but I... I've, I think you just did. Okay, I've yeah, just... I think you just did. In some ways, I feel a resentment toward my community, a resentment toward, I hate to say it, other natives, because I think it's because of the abuse that I grew up with and what I see in our community even today. Well, I think this is a good time to talk about that then. Okay, and so... Be- and before you get to that, can you set the stage for what it was like before that abusive person came into your home and things changed? Yeah. I was I was really happy. <laughs> that's, that's what I remember. Um, and this was up until what age? 10 or 11, maybe. I sometimes I have a hard time remembering I've blocked a lot of it out but I've processed a lot of it too. Um so I remember just growing up in this mud house with my family and our roof used to leak like crazy when it rained. <laughs> so we'd have buckets everywhere. <laughs> to catch the water and I spent a lot of time with my cousins we were like I said we were very close and what was the roof made of the same thing just mud mud and yeah and some plants and yeah just kind of stuck together it was at a time when people in our reservation were kind of transitioning to more of the modern ways but we were still behind the times Um, we had a wood stove um, that basically kept the house warm, and we, so the house would get all smoky, and <laughs> we'd all smell like smoke, which is another thing that my mom didn't really like, because she thought that if we smelled like smoke, everyone would would notice and would judge us as being less than other people. Outside the community, or within Yeah, it? outside the community, okay. yeah, okay. yeah, so... We didn't have running water. I mean, we had a sink in the kitchen, but that was it. So we had to have an outhouse. And so in order to take baths, we got water from the sink. And we did have a stove, so she would heat it up there, or the wood stove. And then that's she'd put it in a big pan, and that's how we took baths every every day. Um, she always wanted us to be clean. We, we played out in the dirt all the time. So that was an, a, another kind of weird thing that she kind of instilled in me. You're a girl. You have to be clean. You can't play out in the dirt all day. You're not supposed to be running around out there. It's too hot. You're supposed to be this dainty little thing. And so I had a lot of that going on, like trying to just impose her view of women in, in, in the community as being dainty, petite, feminine. Did you not feel, especially as you hit adolescence, um, was there and is there a voice in your head that says you're not quote-unquote female? Yes, enough? all the time, even now. Yeah. Yeah, it it stuck with me. What What are some of the things it says to you? That I look like 
a man or that I sound like a man, like my voice is not feminine enough. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, for a long time after this abuse, I I would dress in more masculine clothes. Um, and I was very angry and felt like I was very tough and I always wanted to fight. And so I kind of took over <laughs> these masculine characteristics voluntarily, more, I, I think, as a defense mechanism for myself so that nobody would come close, nobody would mess with me. Um, but, I mean, from a young age, I remember my mom trying to buy me school clothes, um, and it was all dresses. And I would say, no, I'm not wearing that. I'm not wearing and she would force me to wear them. She would fix my hair in little t ponytails and curl it, and I hated it. And finally, one day, she bought me all these clothes, and I said, I'm not wearing it. And I stood my ground, and she finally left me alone. So then I could wear my little football jersey and my <laughs> little ripped-up jeans. And, you know, I. she allowed me to just be who I was. And I, and I always kind of felt like I had some of the masculine qualities for some reason. Uh, I... I I like men. I'm attracted to men. I've always been. I've never been attracted, you know, or... Is, it, is there anything wrong with having some masculine qualities? No. I, now that I'm older, I yeah. I don't think so. I mean, um, you should be able to be whoever you want to be. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, that was kind of a rhetorical question <laughs> on on my part. I was just... I suppose that was my way of asking, is that a bad thing in your mind to appear masculine kind of. or feel masculine? I guess I get yeah, for me I I feel like it's a it's a bad thing that people are gonna think I'm something I'm not or because we I I've I've grown up seeing a lot of people be judged for being different, um being too yeah, feminine or, or too gay or too this or too that. And there was a lot of um, harsh language that was used in our community growing up. A lot of the name calling and everything and homophobia. people were judged. Yeah, a lot of homophobia. People were judged. I was called a dyke for <laughs> in high school and even after high school because of, because of how I behaved and because of how I dressed. Like there was a little girl in third grade who used to just get picked on relentlessly by other kids, and uh, she she I guess she was an odd person, but it didn't matter. It it made me angry, and I was always nice to her. And uh, but then in in my mind, I remember I recall thinking this when I was that age in school, and thinking well. When everyone goes back into class after recess, I'm going to hold her back and I'm going to like beat her up. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why is that? I don't know. Because you wanted to protect her, but you also had anger towards her. I guess I don't remember why the anger was there, but it, it seems like I, I've had this anger toward white kids. <laughs> 
<laughs> and she was a white girl. Yeah. So maybe it was just all of that pent-up anger that just wanted to come out and destroy someone. Yeah. <laughs> it was an easy target. I don't know. One of the things that I, that I have noticed that uh, is there can be anger a lot of times it's somebody that has a quality that you don't that you have that you don't like right because i know when i'm angriest at somebody it's usually because they're displaying a trait in myself that i that i hate and i it's it's kind of a way of me wanting to destroy that part of myself right um so circling back to to where we were, because I wanted to set the stage for what life was like. Okay. Yeah, just a lot of family. My mom wanted you to be more feminine. She also instilled some values in me to live like a white person. I'm sorry if I keep saying that, but that's okay. basically what was taught to me. Um and in some ways, it kind of makes me angry about the way she raised us because I'm I'm proud of my my people, my traditions, my you know my native side. But I always feel like it's kind of pushed down, and so I'm kind of angry at her for that. It's pushed down by her, and then yeah, you to avoid push conflict, push it down to get along. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, what are some of the, uh, white people things? Um, well, to me, Wonder Bread. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> My husband likes to buy that for the kids. And that's what I always think of white people's bread. Cause we didn't have bread. We had these, um, like, uh, sort of like tortillas that we used. We didn't really eat bread and you know just you use your hands and you eat like that and that's how I grew up so wonder bread is totally a white thing but <laughs> I know that it's that way in a lot of people's minds too um yeah she wanted me to not get pregnant at a young age go to school get married have children those were all the things that I was supposed to do and those are all like, to me, those are all like white values or that's because a lot of people in my, where I come from, they don't do that. They, a lot of people in the class that I grew up with had kids in high school or right out of high school. They didn't, didn't really like go to school or, you know, get jobs and they may have done a lot of drinking and a lot of people my age are already from my class are already dead because of um addiction or um you know accidents that res result from addictions and so or when health problems when you look at those people do you feel sadness or anger uh, are you concerned with how they're perceived by the outside world, or is it compassion? What, what do you experience when you see? I feel sadness. Um, because we grew up together, we basically had 
very similar upbringings. Um, and even though my mom didn't really let me interact with them outside of school, they were still part of my past. And to see people struggling is very tough to take because I struggled, but I persevered. I was able to get myself out of that situation, which I feel is hopeless. Living on the res without any um, chance of leaving or just, I just know that, that feeling of not having any hope. And then you act like you're content with it because you're too afraid to to change it. And so that's where a lot I see people being angry at white people, blaming white people for any problems they have, which I'd, I'd say, yeah, that's part of it. That's true. But not all of them. No, 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 not all of them. But I understand the anger. But I don't understand just not helping yourself. So, well, she and my grandfather told me that over the years, this is what you have to do. And um, I always wanted to go to school. I didn't always want to get married. I didn't always want to have kids. I didn't want that type of responsibility, especially when I was actively drinking and all of that. So, Were there any customs or traditions growing up that your mom tried to suppress, or um, what were the customs that were suppressed the most by people that wanted to integrate into white society? Um, well, I think it was, a lot of it was language. She didn't want me to learn the language when I was a little kid because she thought that it would hold me back in school. She didn't want our language to be my first language, so my first language was English. Even though I kind of understood, it was spoken in the home, the language was spoken in the home, and I kind of understood it, but she didn't actively teach me. And a lot of people, her generation, were like that too, because when she was in school, she, like, the teachers told her not to speak it, and she was in a public school, um, and the kids would make fun of them, so they were embarrassed to speak. And wasn't there a big push and with her generation to really get rid of all the customs and all the traditions. And it was almost like a forced integration. I don't, from what I've read, I don't know whose initiative it was, whether it was the U.S. government or an agreement between the tribal leaders and the U.S. government. But um, it, it was the U.S. government. Um, they tried to assimilate um, natives to be to learn how to survive in a white society by um, teaching them English, by cutting their hair, by sending them away to school, taking them away from taking kids away from their 
families and their parents and sticking them in schools and trying to teach them the white way, um, teaching them trades so that they could work in the white society, work in a wage economy, and um, just beat the language out of them so they couldn't communicate with each other, basically. And they, they basically just tried to beat out the, the native in them because they didn't think that... They, I mean, it goes along the lines of, you know, calling us savages and making us as as though we are not human, though we are an other type of being. We're not good enough, you know, those types of things. What Was there a uh, bait they used to get people to do this? Was there a stipend or... Or was it just they reached out to the families and said, would you like your kid to come do this? No, or it was forced. forced. They were forcibly forced. taken. Yeah. Um, Un- under what authority is that legal? Under uh, what office was that? It was like the war office or something. Yeah. I can't remember. The interior? Well, yeah, the, the Department of Interior was created to deal with Native people and um, I mean we were spread out all over they they inst- they put in these reservations to keep people together even though our, lots of our ancestral lands are uh, extended a lot further than reservation boundaries they try to basically hurt us all together and try and make us into another person so and I mean, the rationale was to save us, to, you know, their justification was to save us, to help us. But uh, some people think that a lot of that was just to bring us down. Since the government was putting us on reservations, um, breaking us off from our traditional lands where we gathered food or where we um, had seasonal camps or hunted animals um and promising promising a tract of land that then they would eat away right, at right over, over time right right so basically take the resources <laughs> from right from the taking all of our eat. resources um and that was supposedly to help us to survive in the white society like you were saying that it, it was it, it was imposed. Yeah, it was imposed. There were no questions asked about it. I know there there were leaders that fought to hold on to their lands, of course, hold on to their resources, hold on to their culture and their language. It didn't didn't matter as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> um, and it still happens. So it was today. not an agreement. It, it was no, a, no, no, taken by force. Right. Um, and, you know, some people say that um, it's basically genocide that they're, <laughs> the, I mean, they killed a lot of people off, and it it just, it makes, makes you very angry. Um, and people still have, uh, like, the stereotypes, they have this view of who we are, but, but in their were. minds, it's who you, who they were. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that we're still here. Um, my daughter, who's five, um, 
came home from school and said, oh, mom, we're learning about Indians, and they lived a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) And I I said, oh, um, are there any Native Americans in your class? And she said, no. And I said, well, what about you? (laughs) Look at me, I'm... I'm a native, and she doesn't realize, it doesn't register. Even though I'm teaching her what I know from my own traditions, like cooking and talking about stories and um, just the way I think, the way my mom kind of trained me (laughs) to think. You know, I took the good and left the bad. (laughs) I'm trying to give her the good part. Um, She doesn't see that as a different she doesn't see that as a different world. She just sees it as her, like I did growing up. I didn't realize that people saw me as different until I was older, maybe maybe even an adult. I mean, I, I felt it that I felt that discrimination, yeah. But I didn't really see that I was growing up with a different culture than everyone else. I mean, it was just something that was there all the time. It wasn't like a big deal. Because, you know, the food we ate was what was collected, you know, wild plants, things like that. That was what we added to our diet because that was what our ancestors ate over a thousand years ago. So that was just who we were. So I think that, oh, it's common. Everybody knows about that. But then when I talk to people who don't know anything about my culture, I'm I'm even sort of surprised. Or they tell me what they know about my culture and don't want to hear what I have to say sometimes, too, especially older people and baby boomers. They just have this idea, oh, I learned this from a museum, so that's the way it is. And they try to talk to me, or I try to talk to them about my own perspective and what I grew up with, and they're like, they don't want to hear it. And, and they also don't realize that the museums were curated by white people. Right, right. And they're very... Without much input from Native Americans. Yes. That's changed, though, a lot. I mean, not 100%, but it has been changing, thankfully. (laughs) (laughs) But people still hold on to that. And they, you know, a lot of people want to think about culture and tribes as an object that you put behind a glass and stare at and learn about and think that you know everything about that. So, I mean, they take it as their own, and what they learn, parts of it may be true, but they don't take the time to really understand. Are you talking about Native Americans or? uh, uh, White people or people from other cultures, yeah. Uh, mostly white people. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a, I know I don't, we're using that as a shorthand for yes. outer society. Yeah, I don't, the- I don't hate white people i just that's just the term that i grew up with and that a lot of people um a lot of native people that i talk to use the white world the white people the white this that and the other thing which is not who we are and you know i mean even though it is we live in this society today it is a part of us we have to not have to embrace it but we have to accept it and we have to make our own way with what we've learned all growing up. We have to hold on to our traditions and yet somehow survive in this world, even though we, like, I still feel like I'm walking both this this 
fine line between my culture and the white society. Some t- I can turn it on and off if I want to. <laughs> and I often have to because can I... Can you give an example of that? Um, just the way that I talk or... If I'm with a group of natives in my tribe, I don't want to come off as egotistical or um, I don't want to articulate my thoughts 100%. I don't want to come out using big words and, you know, I mean, I just want to be like everyone else. I want to joke around. I want to pick on people. I want to talk about so-and-so and, you know, um, there's just a language that we use, like like jargon, I guess. I mean, and there's a way in which you say words that people can relate to. Can, you, can you think of any examples? Um, I love specificity in things, especially when it's something I know nothing about. Well, it's like if you're if you're joking around with somebody and you say something in jest and in order for them to really know that you 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 say eh <laughs> so after you've said it like hey paul go fuck yourself eh <laughs> oh yeah okay <laughs> yeah it's kind of that thing okay. and i know i've heard a lot of other tribes have the same type of language and you know so that's just one of the things so let's circle back then to the home, there was love, there was poverty, but there was also love. Mm, yeah. And then this person moved in. And who, yeah. Who was it? Um, he, my mom had a couple boyfriends when I was, because she, she wasn't married. Um, we were actually born from her sister's husband. They were still married, um, and there was a little bit of resentment in the family for that because she was messing around with my aunt's husband. That seems pretty uh, reasonable that there would be some tension. Yeah, my my aunt really didn't like me, didn't like us growing up when we were growing up. Because she but, saw you as the act of her husband cheating. Right, but he, he cheated with everybody in the community. He drank a lot. He was uh, abusive, physically abusive. Um, He broke a lot of things, (laughs) got drunk a lot, yelled. Um, It was kind of scary. And was he, he was your biological father, and was he the bio father of any other kids in your family? Yeah, my brother, and I had... uh, five cousins, first cousins from um, my aunt, which were half brothers and sisters because, he because had, of him. Okay. Um, so that was pretty much what I grew up with in the 70s was a lot of seeing him drink, seeing him yelling and fighting and all that. Um, I didn't even know who my father was until I was like nine years old. Um, you remember being told? Yeah, my mom told me finally. What did she say? Because uh, I, I kept asking. Um, I thought my grandfather was my father because he fit that role, basically. 
Um, I think it was when she told me about sex when I was nine. She had a book, and she went through it and explained how 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 things worked. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was when she told me that he was my father. And I always wanted a father. Just not him. <laughs> yeah. Well, even him. I'll take him. <laughs> but, I mean... So there was that, that I really wanted a fatherly figure my whole life, and he was not available. He was not willing. He didn't acknowledge us as being his, um, unless it was like old, when I was older in, in junior high or high school, he, if he was with his drunk buddies, he'd say, hey, that's my daughter, and, you know, like showing me off or something. I don't know. It was kind of creepy. He didn't sexually abuse me um when my mom my mom was also after him then she was um involved with um someone at her work who happened to be a white guy and so he was more of a fatherly figure but he was also married and he had kids and so he he made time for us though he was very nice, and he would buy us things, and he was easy to talk to, and very su- just supportive, and everything that my real father wasn't. But I never really saw him as my father. So after him, after he left, he didn't live with us, but he moved away. Um, then she started getting involved with this other person from our community, who she knew as being abusive, physically abusive, to um, a wife that he had, a former wife. And she would uh, reject his advances for several, maybe several years, I think, from what I remember. But there was just one day where he kept asking her to go out on a date and so finally, one day, she said, okay. Now, he happened to be uh, a school counselor. And so he knew who I was. Um, they used to have these tribal education counselors that would help Native students if they were having difficulty. and Or if they got sick, they'd take you home. Um, so he knew who I was. He hit on my mom. My mom finally said, okay. And then... She got pregnant, and then he he moved in. And um, I think he was 10 years older than her. It's interesting that your mom didn't want you to get pregnant, and she keeps getting pregnant yeah. <laughs> with abusive, unavailable men. Right, right. Um, well, she she said a lot of things about what not to do as far as sex, and it's just kind of weird, kind of funny. It's almost like she was talking to herself, which I think parents do a lot of, I think people do a lot of times. They say the things to other people that they really, deep down, unconsciously are saying to themselves. Right, right. So go ahead. He, He had a job, so he had money, and that was another big deal for us because we didn't have the luxury of buying things a lot, and... So he bought her all these maternity clothes, and then he moved in shortly after that. 
and um, he would buy me things. He would take us for ice cream, which isn't like something we didn't do. I mean, we might have eaten at a at Sonic for maybe once a month, if that. It wasn't like we went out to restaurants or anything like that. So it was a big deal, and um, but he. He was very nice, very funny, very well-liked in the community. He was in AA, and he he often was a speaker at meetings everywhere. Everybody loved him. Great guy. Um, <laughs> so most of it was a front. Yeah. He was also a Catholic and well-known in the church, and he was a police officer and, like I said, school counselor and all of these things. Um, so he was really nice, moved in. Um, and then he just switched and became very abusive. Um, and my mom, she was kind of timid, I think. She didn't really stand up for herself, and he took advantage of that, and he would um, humiliate her in public. And we used to spend a lot of time with my cousins. He he put a stop to that. He didn't allow um, her sister to come over anymore with the kids. I mean, so just classic predator behavior. I know. Charm, isolate, beat the self-esteem down. Right. And... Then control. Right. So once he got rid of everybody else, um, he was just verbally abusive to her. Um, he was physically abusive to um, my sister, who was was born from that relationship. Um, well, he he spanked her. You know, he spanked. I had two sisters from from that, and he spanked them all the time. Um, yell at them scream at them for spilling milk or water or whatever. So that's something I don't do with my kids. I just, I can't stand it. It just makes me so angry that we had to deal with that. Um, so then that anger was turned on us too. We were afraid of him. And uh, my mom couldn't do or say anything about it. He he controlled everything. and uh, And then... I can't even remember at what age, but probably 12 or I don't know. Um, he started um, taking me off to go places. And, you know, me, I'm, I wanted I'm special. Father, yeah, I'm special. He wants to spend time with me and we're going to go somewhere. And, you know, because we didn't have a car <laughs> growing up either. So, um, so he'd take me for ice cream, he'd take me to the store, he'd take me on errands, single me out. Um, and then I think it was like seventh grade or I think it was seventh grade. It was like the first day of school. I came home, I was tired, fell asleep, and then it was evening and he wanted to take me for ice cream to celebrate my first day of seventh grade. And... um so he took me out in the middle of nowhere. I don't even remember if we got the ice cream or not. <laughs> um, and then started talking to me about boys. Oh, do you have a boyfriend? Um, 
have you ever kissed a guy? And um, I hadn't. I, I was just a kid, and I was um, I, I was going through puberty, but I hadn't done any of that and, and didn't really want to. And so anyway, he just started kissing me and saying, this is how you kiss a person and yeah, whatever. And I just kind of froze. I didn't know what to do because it was in the middle. It was just out of nowhere. Um, it was night. Um, and I had nowhere <laughs> to turn to. And I was just in shock. And um, so I just kind of sat there and just waited till it was over. But I, I felt it was wrong. I knew there was something. And it scared the shit out of me. Um, and, of course, it, that, that's as far as that went at that time. And then, but he told me. We sat there and we talked for long time afterwards and he told me if you tell anybody I'm gonna kill your mom I'm gonna kill your grandfather and your brother and so he that's a lot different than ice cream yeah so um, I thought that was a real threat because of the way that he treated us and how physical he was and I mean he he even basically beat me down verbally, mentally, because he'd say you're ugly or you're you're stupid and you're 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 too skinny, you're skin and bones, you're bony, just all of those things to just chip away at my self esteem, and uh, that's how I felt and I still feel that way. Um, and I, I worked through that, but so that was like the first time where he really just crossed the line, and and then after that he just kept singling, you know, getting me alone, trying. He would just make out with me, um, and then eventually, I don't know how long it took, but eventually, and I didn't want to go with him anymore. When he told my mom, "I'm taking her." I'd say, no, I don't want to go with him. And my mom would say, go. I don't want him getting angry with me. You better go. So she forced me. Do you think deep down she knew? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm still working on resentment with her. I mean, we're close. I love her. She's my mom. But I don't know. Maybe she did. Maybe it happened to her. That's all. That's the only thing I can think of. So she was abused and she never talks about it. I wouldn't doubt it growing up in that community. So she just forced me, and I just had to go. I didn't have a choice. And then eventually he um, he just took me out and just basically raped me. Um, and I was, I don't know. <laughs> he had a truck, this brown 70s Ford truck that I see uh, everywhere. <laughs> you must get so triggered when you see that. It is huge trigger, but I've worked through that. But So he just took me out to this area that was like a dump site. 
and um, just basically took advantage. It just raped me right then and there in the truck. And I was crying. I was screaming. I was saying, no, get off of me. Um, please. <laughs> and what would he say? Nothing. Just kept going. Um, just took my pants off, took my underwear off, and just had sex with me. And um, it hurt. And I, uh, after that, um, and I, I don't remember if he threatened me or not, but I was just kind of zoned out. And um, it's kind of like a dream. <laughs> um, and I just remember going back to the house, and I went to the bathroom, and I had to clean up blood and everything and I was crying and just locked myself in my room basically and um, I don't even think I had a room then <laughs> but I my brother had a room and so I went in there and this is when we had a, a, a new house we had a more modern house with plumbing and all that stuff in the 80s and uh, so of course I really put up a fight after that when my mom tried to force me to go with him or he used to like to play cards too so we'd play um what is it gin rummy and uh we'd keep keep score and uh so he taught me how to play that and then we'd play in my mom's room and usually in the evenings when she was making dinner in the kitchen and so he would of course fondle me and everything and and just try and watch out for her coming down the hallway. Um, so that happened a lot. I didn't want to be around him, but I didn't have a choice. And so this went on. I don't know how long, maybe a year, maybe two years. I don't know. I can't remember. I did a timeline, but I can't, years ago, and I, I can't really remember, but... After a while, he would just, um, I shared a, a bedroom with my brother after that, because I, I used to sleep in the living room, and then he would just come in there and get me and take me into the kitchen, and, you know, and then finally, I think I just moved into my brother's room, because I wanted some safety, some... Uh, and no family members knew? No. The, the the sexual abuse just continued even after I moved into um, my brother's bedroom. And my brother has always looked after me. He's always been a very good protector and um, very loving. He, he didn't know this was going on. Um, this person would come into my room because my brother snored, and so he could hear him snoring, so he knew he was out, out of sleep. And so he would come in and start messing with me, and I'd wake up with him on top of me. And um, I don't know how long that went on, but it happened a lot. And so my mom got pregnant again um, shortly after 
my my sister was born. Um, and while my mom, this is a pretty strong memory, but when my mom was in the hospital having my um, other sister, um, he came into my room, took me out of my bedroom, took me into his bedroom with my baby sister was asleep and had sex with me in there on the floor. This is while my mom was in the hospital having his baby. Wow. Um, and you, had you just shut down? Pretty much. At this point? Yeah, well, I think in my mind I tried to say, this is what's supposed to happen, or this is what I want to happen. And I know a lot of, I've heard a lot of people say that. They mm-hmm. try and justify it. Right. Like, oh, I want this. So so at a certain point, you had convinced yourself that I'm trapped, so I might as well try f- to find something in this experience, I'm sure subconsciously, that gives me a sense of control. Right. Yes. Okay. And, and what what were those things, those moments? Um, one of the first guests I had that talked about being sexually abused um at the end of the interview she said you know there's one more thing i want to add she had been raped by her father roughly the same age that this was happening to you and she said there were times when i would initiate it and i just want somebody to know that it's still sexual abuse because you have been brainwashed and traumatized by this person and an adult even if a child comes on to them, it is up to the adult to know that this is not right. Yeah. So if there's anything that you can share that will help somebody out there who feels like they deserved it or they participated in it, um, if there's anything you can share with them or say to them to let them know. The only thing that I can think of is that something that took a, a long time for me to accept was that it it wasn't my fault. It wasn't he was an adult. He should have he shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. I couldn't fight back. I couldn't protect myself. I was going through puberty and I was trying just trying to justify it in my mind so that I could just live another day <laughs> but it, it wasn't justified i blamed myself for many years i i felt it felt like i was his girlfriend during that time but and tried to build myself up like that like oh well i'm special um but it, you're not. I mean, it's your mind plays tricks on you to try and make the best of this horrible situation. And once you forgive yourself, it wasn't your fault. You have to forgive yourself. Did you struggle with going back and forth in your brain about it being your fault? 
or not, or that you're making too big of a deal of it, or somehow easing the responsibility off of him and taking some of it yourself. Yeah, I think I I took it myself because I I think I wanted to be close to a father figure, and I didn't really know what that meant because I didn't have one. I mean, he read all of this. Yeah. He, what a master manipulator. And typical narcissist and yeah. sexual abuser. It, it, it's. I know. I see that now, but. Did you have to see that to be able to let go of you feeling you, that you were somehow responsible? Or what helped you get to the point where you could say, this was not my fault in any shape or form. I think just getting sober, uh, seeing a psychologist. I've seen this. I've been seeing psychologists for many years, but I had to get sober to be able to work through all of the, the issues from my childhood and to and I think AA helped me to forgive him as well. Because I had, I had to do that for myself to get sober, to stay sober. Did it come organically, though? No. Okay. No, it, it was happen? a struggle. Because, I mean the forgiving. Because I, I get angry when somebody says, you need to forgive that person. Because I believe... It has to come organically from from that person, and telling someone they need to forgive somebody it is to me a form of abuse because what you're saying is your healing process is taking too long, or I know what your healing process should look like, and it's another way of demeaning someone mm. in my opinion okay uh, I believe that the way to help them is. Help them in a way of learning more about loving yourself and through loving yourself, you begin to feel as if that person took from you, but you have so much more left yeah. that you can see them as sick and not, it sounds weird, not take it personally. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I guess I started trying to understand what he had been through. That the same thing happened to him. That he, I don't think he was, I mean, outside of his actions, I don't think he was mentally there. I think he, he went to this um, school called Boys Town. And I think he was abused, sexually abused there. I know he was physically and psychologically abused there. But he was a, a, a raging alcoholic. And he he used to drink with all these other natives in, in, a, in the city. And he he got beaten up so badly. Someone kicked him in the head so badly. This was all before this ha abuse happened. That they had to put a steel plate in his head. And so... I don't think he was very intelligent, and I don't even know if he 
even could take accountability for his actions. I don't know, because I'm sure this he did this to other girls. I know for a fact he did this when he was a police officer at in in he he and some other police officers, tribal police officers sexually abused the girls that they brought in that were drunk. I believe he knew what he was doing because his manipulation showed that there was executive some type of executive function going on um or I don't know what the word, maybe I'm misusing that word, but that that there was still a coherence going on um, because he was masterful in in trapping you. He was a dry drunk, basically, even though he went to all these meetings and spoke and shared and read the big book and read the Bible. He was a raging person. Yeah, that's one of the things that, that some people don't understand about support groups is no one person is a representation of that support group any right. more than a single baseball player represents the sport of baseball. Right. But and, that's what kept me from getting sober for so long because I couldn't stand hearing men talk about sobriety because I heard him say it so much and it always changed when the door behind closed doors yeah and it was really it took me a long time i hated god i turned against him um i think for me i had to forgive him even though people suggested that i couldn't do that for many years but it finally got to the point where i had to because i had to let go of all of that stuff from childhood in order to move on and what was what was the thing the the final straw that allowed that forgiveness to come from you because you can't do it intellectually i mean you can say i forgive that person intellectually but that's you have to feel it forgiveness is a feeling to me well i couldn't stay sober that was kind of my last ditch effort to try and take care of myself. I would end up, I was going to AA and then I'd turn around and start drinking the same night. I was drinking every day, all day long. I don't know how many years that, that I did that. Um, and when I tried to stay sober, I just couldn't. I'd have to. I'd sit outside the liquor store and tell myself, "Don't go in, don't go in, don't go in," and I'd end up going in. And I was drinking while I was at work, before work, in the shower. I'd have a beer <laughs> while I was in the shower, getting ready for work, go to work. When I times I didn't go to work, um. So I that that was my main reason for. Just forgiving because I didn't have God in my life, or at least I didn't think I did. I rejected him. And that was really the only thing that allowed me, or I felt like it allowed me to stay sober, was to let it go. So how how did you do that? Well, I prayed. I do... 
I like to just lay down, close my eyes, and just think. Just work things out in my mind. Talk to God. Um, I just mentally did it. I don't even think I said it out loud. I just thought it, and things just kind of lifted. What did you say or think? Um, just that I'm not going to let him hurt it, hurt me anymore. That even though he did these actions, he's, he's a man. He's not, he's not a higher power. He's not, he's a man. People do these things. People do wrong. I can forgive things that happened because they're sick they're hurt they're suffering i mean i i believe he's he he's in hell he passed away i believe he's in hell and that helps me <laughs> did he take an uber <laughs> cuz i heard they're going there now I hope he took a jet. <laughs> um, yeah, I I forgave him before. I mean, I didn't talk to him, but I just mentally did it be even before he died. But the thing was, he was still in our community. He still lived in the ho home. I ended up telling my mom on one Christmas Eve when he was a police officer, we were. she wanted to wait for him to open presents because at that time we had money and, you know, I wasn't looking forward to Christmas. I wasn't looking forward to her forcing me to be with him. And so it was like 11 o'clock and he was going to get back at midnight and she was, she was saying, no, no, we have to wait for him. I said, no, mom. And I told her that he was abusing me, that he was molesting me. And she was shocked. And I went into my room, and she confronted him that night when he got home. That really surprises me, because I would have guessed from her pattern of behavior, your mom would have been the one that said you were lying, or, you know, you need to get over it, you know, well, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> Well, what happened, <laughs> I don't want her to disappoint you, <laughs> what happened, <laughs> even though I told her, he denied it, and he did own up to it later. She, I basically went in my room that night, and I didn't come out <laughs> for I don't know how many years. So she allowed him to still live in the house. And she allowed me to lock myself in that room. That was her solution. Yeah. And so she, I didn't have to go with him anymore. But I wouldn't come out of my room if he was in the house. You were still trapped. I was trapped. His their room bedroom was right next to mine, and I needed to cross the hallway by their bedroom to go to the bathroom. I wasn't going to do it. 
if he was in the house. So I locked myself there for years. And you would I, just come out to eat or? No, she would bring me my food. You literally did not leave. No, I didn't there. leave. Oh, my God. There were only a few times when they would be out of the house, where he would be out of the house. Um, outside of work, he didn't, I wouldn't come out. And so from what age to what age? I can't remember when this stopped. Maybe, well, it didn't really stop. Um, maybe 13, 14, I don't know. So it may, may have been only a year that it took for him to groom me. And then maybe about 13 or 14 when I, when I told her, I don't know. I, I started high school and I didn't, so I didn't want to leave my room then, but she forced me to go. And I would get off the bus just as he was getting off work and getting to the house. We'd so, arrive together. So you you were getting outside of the room, but in the in the when you were in the house, you were always in your yeah room. Yeah, I got you. Well, I quit I quit ninth grade because he saw he would see me getting off the bus. So I quit school and I just stayed in my room. And yeah, so whenever. It was like a birthday or something. She'd still try to force me to come out, and I, I would scream my head off. I would punch the walls. I would punch myself. I would break things just so she would leave me alone. So she would still try to get me out, and I wouldn't. Well, if, if you could go back in time, what would you say to her in that moment when you're in your room? And she's telling you to come out. For a birthday. I guess I would just beg for her to help me, protect me. I don't think I ever really said those words to her. Why did I have to? Just beg for her to protect me, to get rid of him, for us to be okay again. I mean, she believed me. She just didn't have the tools to deal with it. She was afraid of him. She was sick in her own way. Yeah. So she would just bring me food. She would cook all the meals. She would bring it inside. And she would bring me water. She would tell me when he was gone or went outside so I could go to the bathroom. And then I'd go straight back to my room. What kind of nightmares did you have? <sighs> I'd have uh, nightmares about a shadow for many years until I was an adult, until just maybe 10 years ago. <laughs> um, this shadow just on top of me, just having sex with me. I can't move. I'm trapped. Um, or it's hurting me. Um, like I would feel this pain in my side and... The next morning, I'd wake up with bruises, and I, I don't think it... I mean, this is when... This is as an adult. There's... Uh, I'm kind of superstitious, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My husband kind of teases me about that, because I'm so superstitious. So, 
To me, it's an evil presence. To me, it's real. Because I had marks. I lived alone mm -hmm. after all this as an adult. And I would have those dreams. And I would wake up with bruises on the, my side because of this thing pushing in on me. Wow. Like fingers just pushing. What are the things that trigger you today, if you're comfortable sharing them? Um, I... Brown trucks. Brown trucks. Um, people, men, native men, <laughs> sometimes. Especially older, white-haired men. Native men. Um, country music, sometimes AA. Um, police officers, <laughs> tribal police officers, uh, Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Paul. <laughs> no, I'm not a practicing Catholic. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, counselors. <laughs> there's, there's a lot. Yeah. Every day. Of, smells. Of, yes. That, and apparently that's one of the strongest triggers are smells. Certain colognes. There's some support groups where they ask people not to wear colognes or perfumes. Mm. Yeah. Lately, there's a guy at work that's been wearing this cologne, and it kind of reminds me. But, I mean, he's a nice guy. It's not such a strong association anymore. I've been through EMDR and EFT and... What's EFT? Emotional Freedom Technique. Yeah. Where you do this tapping and oh, chant. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Chant. I've heard about that. Repeat these uh repeat these sayings to yourself really like affirmations and helps you get through stress and, and did they help yeah yeah At, i when i did emdr it was it was like re-traumatizing basically for a few months and then that was when that was what really helped me to stop having nightmares because i would have them every single night so how exhausted was, would you be after a session of emdr oh yeah i i couldn't go to work i was just sleeping i yeah i was, slept for almost two days one time yeah, yeah describe in your body if you can what you began to experience as emdr started to work for you if you if you remember any anxiety just tightness in my chest um, I'd have anxiety attacks and I'd have... This like, is after EMDR or before? During. I during, would, okay. But, you know, my therapist would work with me and get me to a good good state before I left. And then if... But in the meantime, I would have these anxiety attacks. So I had to take medication and I, I take medication now for depression anyway. So I suffer from that, PTSD. So I guess what I'm asking is... After you finished EMDR, what were the benefits that you felt both physically, emotionally, and mentally? Well, mentally, I was um, I was a lot better able to deal with triggers. The triggers lessened in intensity after EMDR. Like I would still get anxious with seeing a truck. I wouldn't need to feel like I was running away. I needed to run away. I see. If I saw somebody in the community that looked just like him, I wouldn't start break down and breaking down and crying immediately. I could look at that person and tell myself, that's not him. And you learned that. I learned therapy. that. Yeah. Yeah. 
and he's he's dead. I can't remember when he died, but every now and then I'll think he's it's really him that he's in he's still here. I can sense his presence. I can I still dream about him. I still dream about that house. But it doesn't affect me like it used to. And I drank a lot. And I did a lot of drugs just to get away from that memory. Um, but I still dream about it. There, there were dreams. After EMDR, the dreams didn't have such an impact on me anymore. Didn't make me very emotional when I woke up. I didn't wake up crying. I didn't wake up screaming. That type of thing. Some of the dreams are actually changing. I'm, I'm in control a little bit. I'm telling him to get out. Or, you know, there were uh, my dreams. I'm trapped there. I'm back being a kid. I can't get away. There's no car. There's no money. There's nowhere to go. Recently, I've been having dreams where I'm thinking, well, I need to move into an apartment to get away from this house. <laughs> and I have the ability to do it in my mind, in my dream. So that's extraordinary. I've only had it like twice within the past year, but it's it's extraordinary. I, I had one about a year ago where a group of people did something to me, put something in me when I was asleep, mm-hmm. and in the dream, asleep. Mm-hmm. And... And I woke up as they were taking it out of me, mm-hmm. and and they were kind of laughing. And I said, "What what what are you doing?" And mm-hmm. and nobody would say anything. And and I confronted them, and I said, "What you did is rape." Mm-hmm. And it had never occurred to me that something that my mom did, which wasn't medically necessary. Mm-hmm. was a form of that and I'd never mm-hmm. used that word to call it yeah. that and when I woke up that there was another first of all it felt great that was the first time I ever stood up for myself in my dream yeah and and sp- spoke my truth and it was the first time I ever used that word mm-hmm. and and it was it was a nice moment of visibly seeing that there was some type of strength being being built up and some type of connection to the to the truth in a way that wasn't being minimized by me or right somebody else yeah and for me it was when i woke up i didn't realize that that happened i was telling my husband about it and he told me he had to point it out Hey, you can take control. And then my psychologist pointed it out too. I mean, that's I huge. I didn't even know it. It's huge. Yeah. So, today, how are you? I'm good. I still go through bouts of depression. I, you know, I, I'm back on medication. Are you kind to yourself when you're going through the depression? Uh,. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I just want to lie in it. <laughs> it's so comforting, like you say, like a warm blanket or <laughs> stinky, a warm, <laughs> stinky, stinky blanket. blanket. <laughs> Mine smells like downy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I am. I try to be kind to myself. I get overstressed though. I still beat myself up for 
a lot of things, like I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I'm ugly, I'm stupid, lazy. That's all you got? <laughs> That's it? I got some tips for you. I can get those numbers up in one day. Have you read my book? You're a piece of shit, you just don't know it. To go back to similarities between Native people mm-hmm. that I see is we all have so much trauma. Some of it stems from addiction, which all goes back to abuse. People die. People get killed. People kill each other. We all, it feels like we all know somebody who was murdered or who was a murderer. We all have that in our families, it seems. I mean, I have to believe that these are ripples from things that happened hundreds of years ago, because if there's no healing, those cycles just perpetuate. Yes, I I think so, too. And that makes me angry. My sisters drank a lot. My youngest sister was killed in a... An accident, she was hit while running across the road, killed instantly. I'm so sorry. Thank you. My other half-sister was killed in an accident. In my, my, first, my youngest sister was killed in August of 2011. My older sister was killed in December of 2011. Wow. Mom, uh, I guess it was both. They were both related to alcohol, but drugs for my youngest one. I I have to pass their memorials, their roadside memorials, every day, coming to and from work. They, her, my youngest sister's boyfriend killed um, someone in our community, and he's in prison. They have four kids. <laughs> My nieces and nephews that I love, they had to experience that trauma of losing their mother and their father. And now they've got to experience the trauma of molestation by their older brother. So that it's just too common. Is there any type of support network in these communities that... Therapy. Yeah, um, yeah. There, I, I think it's great. There is a lot out there that people can use to deal with these things. Can you name some that you can that you can think of, or is it just specific to? Your I, I was area? thinking more specific to my community. Okay. Yeah, uh, but I, I know a lot of other communities have the same types of resources in their communities too. You're talking about native communities. Yeah. 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 Um, and is it helping? I think so. My nieces and nephews have been in in therapy since they were small, since their mom passed away. And now they're in therapy for these other things that just happened recently. I think they have a chance, but I'm. it brings back all those same triggers. Because it happened in the house with my mom and my sister there living with them. And my mom, they brought it to the attention of CPS, and he's in treatment center. He's going to be going off to Texas to another 
treatment facility for a few years now. It's really dis disturbed the family, my mom. It's been hard for me because it brought back all of those old triggers. And my, I'm, I'm looking at my mom sitting there, and you know she's trying to take care of them by doing all of these things. And I'm thinking in my mind, why couldn't you do that for me? And that goes, just recently I realized that I felt like she treated me like a dog because she would bring me the food, she would bring me the water, she would take me out to, she would let me know when it was okay to go to the bathroom. She essentially treated me like a dog. Wow. That, that, that realization just came to me a few months ago, and it really made me sad. But I still love her. I still support her. I, she's my mom. Uh, I resent her somewhat, but I'm getting over that. I'm working on it, and it's—I don't know that it's ever going to go away. She's she's old. She's she could pass away any day now. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I I just—it just boggles my mind how she chose him over me. I wish I could say I haven't heard that a thousand, ten thousand times. Yeah. It's sadly too common, and I think it speaks to that particular type of sickness that, yeah. that she has. That's every bit as serious as alcoholism yeah. or drug addiction. Yeah. She doesn't believe in therapy, even though my sister takes the kids to therapy and she goes to therapy. She doesn't believe in it. It's not the way to, it's not her way. It's not, not our way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate, I've been looking forward to this, uh, this interview conversation, whatever you want to call it, uh, ever since you contacted me because, um, just so many, there were so many things I wanted to know and you were able to articulate them so well. And you're such a great example of somebody being able to survive really, really horrible shit and to come out the other side. Yeah. Yeah, with scars, but yeah. not open wounds. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of this and getting vulnerable and um, letting me be an occasional doofus. <laughs> and, and no so, problem. And... and uh, being a supporter of the podcast, I, I appreciate that, you know, listening yeah. and, and um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I, I was very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> surprised that we did it or surprised that it wasn't horrible? <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not horrible. No, it's great. Just surprised that I, I was able to talk to you, contact you, and that we're actually doing it. I mean, yeah. this is great. Many, many thanks to, to Ellen. Um, before I take it up with some surveys, um, I want to remind you guys that there, or at least let you know, remind sounds like I'm being passive aggressive. I want to let you know there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support the show financially by uh, becoming either um, a one-time donor via PayPal or a monthly donor via either PayPal or Patreon, which uh, would be a better choice for you because then you can get 
occasional free stuff or get entered into a raffle for a cutting board I make or stuff like that. Um, you can also help the show non-financially uh, by spreading the word about it through social media. Um, yeah, there you go. This is a shame and secret survey. Oh, and filling out the surveys. That's another way that you can you can help the show. It's a really big part of of the show. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Push Comes to Shovel. Uh, she is in her 30s, um, identifies as straight, uh, but she says, I've always fantasized about being with other women. I have a gay brother, so this has always made me feel pressure to be the straight one that may bear children someday. Uh, she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She writes, I feel like my entire childhood, I was making and burying an emotional time capsule that now, as an adult, just keeps getting dug up over and over again. I've ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts, suicide. Darkest secrets. I watch too much porn and masturbate every day. I've never met a man that could keep up with my sexual needs and have been shamed about it by those men. This has led me to not wanting to even pursue companionship with someone, even though it's what I desperately want in life. I don't want, I, ju I don't just want a sexual companion, but someone open enough and emotionally mature enough to not shame me for what I want and to compromise with me to build intimacy and a gratifying joint partnership. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being with a man and a woman at the same time. Sharing that makes, uh, oh, uh, it makes me feel fear of, <laughs> how does sharing that make you feel? It makes me feel fear of getting herpes. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to, that I love them? Have you shared these things with others? I've told a few friends, but the emotional fog is too much to see through sometimes, and I can't even figure out which direction is up myself, so it's hard to share it with others. Boy, isn't that true? Isn't that true? Sometimes that feels like the biggest hurdle to opening up to somebody is we don't know how to express it. We don't even know the the truth of it and the fear that we're going to express it wrong or imperfectly. How do you feel after writing these things down? Upset. Well, I'm sorry that it, it upset you to feel uh, to to fill that out, but I'm really grateful that you took the time to to share that stuff with us. This is from the love survey, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself repressed raging redhead, and uh, his love. He writes, "I love the strong smell of Richardson." Casein paints. Uh, I have no idea what this. A lot of this survey, I've, I've never felt less educated reading a survey than I have this guy's survey. Uh, I also love the smell of oil paints, of linseed oil, and liquid liquin medium, and the satisfaction of mixing paints in general. I love the feeling of a blank page or wooden board before I paint. Most of all, I love the surge of energy through my belly as I start to paint an image in my head or do a live, clean air painting, P-L-E-I-N. We should have a little thing dinging the number of words in this survey that I don't know. 
Do you have any comments or suggestions to make the podcast better? None. But I do have an axe to grind with Paul regarding a certain subject. Pop-Tarts. Unfrosted or frosted. My answer, neither. Pop-Tarts. That chalky, underwhelming snack whose parsimonious dirt... No idea what parsimonious means. I think, though, it might be my favorite vegetable. If you have never had potatoes and parsimonious in the winter, you are robbing yourself. Underwhelming snack whose parsimonious dearth of flavor is analogous to severe childhood emotional neglect to one's taste buds should be stricken, no erased from the face of the earth as Tywin did the reigns of Castamere. I don't know if that means uh, Tywin Lannister. Was there a Tywin Lannister from Game of Thrones? Continuing, no, never Pop-Tarts. Strawberry flavor toaster strudel? A unanimous yes, always. Where Pop-Tarts are dry and powdery as the Sahara, toaster strudel is flaky and buttery, like a fresh-baked croissant in Paris. Where Pop-Tarts' frugal portioning of fruit-like paste brings to mind that of ancient Greek heavenly gluttony. It is what Pop-Tarts wished they tasted like, while on LSD, let alone sober. Toaster strudel is a nihilist solace, a Satanist sin, an ex-Scientologist psychiatric appointment. Pop-Tarts, unfrosted or frosted, irrelevant. I give you toaster strudel, strawberry flavor. (laughs) I need to go back to college. Thank you for that. And it's funny, I read that uh, survey, I don't know, a month or two ago, and I've eaten many unfrosted Pop-Tarts since then. And every time I sit down to eat one, I take that first bite, and I think, it is pretty fucking chalky. And and I was at the grocery store, and I looked for the toaster strudels, and I didn't I didn't see them. I, I, I'm, I am open-minded. If a toaster strudel comes my way, I will. Open my front door and let it in. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself pretend hipster. Aren't all pretend? All hipsters pretend. I was on a date with a guy that I really like and I really enjoy his company. We decided to play hipster and hang out at a coffee shop after we had lunch at a place down the street. We sat around eating cookies and drinking coffee while we complained about our older siblings when an ugly side effect of my meds decided to make an appearance. I'm on meds for my depression and anxiety as well as doing talk therapy and they have really helped. Many of the side effects I initially had have gone away except for my trembling. It's not violent or anything. It doesn't stop me from doing my job or daily task, but it's embarrassing for me and can become noticeable, especially when I'm holding something. So every time I picked up my coffee cup or a cookie, my hand shook uncontrollably. I tried not to think about it and silently prayed he wouldn't notice, but he did. He asked if I was cold and if I wanted his coat. I sighed and told him no before explaining that it was a side effect from my meds. I told him I had anxiety and depression, but I never told him I took meds. In the past, when I told guys, uh, I told them, when I told guys, I told them they would immediately, I think there's a typo in there. When I told them they would immediately change and then disappear. Instead of pretending he left the stove on, he grabbed my hand and held it. 
He revealed that he used to take antidepressants, so he was all too familiar with the nasty side effects it could have. We started a long conversation about mental health and medication, and for the first time in a long time, I didn't feel judged for taking meds. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm grateful that in, in my relationship with my girlfriend, I don't have fear of expressing who I am to her. I might have in the beginning before we really got to know each other, but she's a very open-minded and compassionate person. And that's a nice feeling. And I'd like to think I am with her as well. I hope I am. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Mr. Dave. He is in his 20s. He identifies as straight, uh, but interested in other men romantically, but nothing sexual. I don't know what that makes me. I think uh, some people refer to that as being pan-romantic. Um he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. He's never been sexually abused. Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. I would get into physical altercations with my family growing up. Not sure if it counts as physical abuse, but things escalated every now and then. My dad has never been available outside of talking shop about anything. And then my mom would put immense expectations on everything. And I was never put down, but when I didn't meet those expectations, it left a void for a short period after. Is disconnection from my family growing up considered abusive? It's not the most healthy for sure. I, th- I think the, the word that I would use would be neglect. And to me, it doesn't really matter what the word is for something that somebody experienced. What matters is the feelings and the effect that it's having on us today. And for more about that subject, I, I would recommend reading uh, a book called Running on Empty by Dr. Janice Webb or um, listen to the episode. We had her as a guest, I want to say, two years ago, maybe. Great episode. One of, one of our most downloaded. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I don't have any interest in anything involving my dad. The best we can ever do is talk shop or sit in silence. My mom stays in touch, but I don't like to be around her. She tries to replace the emotional ro- role of husband when I'm around. She keeps asking me to not resent her for my time with them. Of course, I reassure, but leave out that I don't want any significant relationship with either of them outside of occasional check-ins. Darkest thoughts. I have the thought of sitting on the couch in my parents' basement with my rifle, muzzle under my chin, and dry firing it until I build up the courage to load it with the first round from the first box when I first bought it. Wow, that is, that is intense. Darkest secrets. I watched my sister be molested by an older guy that I held as my role model. I didn't know it was inappropriate at the time, but the worst part is that those times I did see, I would be in the background enjoying her misery. Nothing sexual. Just growing up, I felt good seeing her cry and upset. That's pretty intense, too. Uh, Gracie, (laughs) it's like she waits until I start recording to bark. (laughs) 
She's very bossy. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want a woman that squirts. It excites me to know that she is having an orgasm. But digging deeper has made me realize that I'm so scared of a woman lying and to me while being intimate. I desire the reassurance that I am desired and what we're doing is desired and what I'm doing is right. It only comes up if she happens to be or if we get to the point where we discuss our taste in porn. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my mom that I don't want any involvement with her or my dad. I don't resent either one, but I don't think that there can be a functional symbiosis between us. What, if anything, do you wish for? Retaliation to those that disturb the natural flow around me. That I could feel normal again. That I didn't put off everything I have the ability to do. That I find myself attractive. That I didn't smoke. That I could find a relationship that wasn't toxic. Have you shared these things with others? Uh, Normalcy, procrastination, and smoking have been talked about in counseling. Antidepressants were prescribed and we're working on building a schedule to taper from smoking. How do you feel after writing these things down? I don't feel great about it. The anonymity of it let me share things I haven't said aloud, even to myself. It was a bit of an out-of-body experience while I word vomited all over your nice survey. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? See someone. Just go. From someone that is in so deep they can barely take care of themselves on a day-to-day basis, just take this one step to help yourself. Amen. Amen, man. It's it's all about the baby steps because there's that part of our brain that just wants it all fixed and changed overnight. And that's just not reality. This is a love from a guy who calls himself uh, Lewis, and he writes, I love going to the movies alone when I get into the theater with my own snacks and drinks, and I'm wearing clothes that are comfy, even if they aren't very nice for wearing in public, and no one expecting me anywhere anytime soon, and just enjoying the movie and the story without a feeling of judgment or anxiety flooding my chest. Or maybe if it is there, I don't care for those few hours that I'm in that seat, and I can just breathe. And for once, I don't need my inhaler with me to do it. Ah, thank you for that, Lewis. That was that was beautiful. And he's he's seventeen. I don't know why I felt the need to add that. This is a shame and secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself the girl with the fake smile. She is in her 20s, identifies as straight, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I would, I would call it a chaotic environment. Uh, she's been the victim of sexual abuse, or she, she writes some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, but she doesn't share the, the details of that. She's been emotionally abused. Uh, she was raised with a father who was uh, abusive. Well, let me just read it. Parents divorced divorced when I was eight. Home was always a tense place with a codependent mother who worked her ass off to manage the household chores and keep up with three kids while also being the breadwinner. 
My father was in his own world, either watching TV or training for triathlons. I remember my mom crying a lot and constantly fighting with my dad to the point where I would jump in front of him or interject their screaming match and say, leave my dad alone. I tried so hard to get my father's attention, but could never get close to him. He never told me those sweet things daddies say to their little girls about how beautiful and smart they are. I felt the opposite, worthless, stupid, and hard to love. My mother remarried soon after they got divorced, and I only saw my dad every other weekend. My stepdad was a true narcissist, swept my mom off her feet, and moved us two hours away from our family. He sexualized me starting from the age of 10, constantly showing me examples of hot women, basically sending the message that if I wasn't thin with large breasts, a nice ass, and a flat stomach, I'm nothing. He would always make references to sex and shared some crazy stories with me. I would have to seem interested or I'd deal with his wrath. He would touch my ass all of the time and it was a joke. I remember fake laughing so I wouldn't get in trouble for, quote, looking sad. My stepdad would also threaten to kill my father or severely beat him up quite frequently, even in front of my mother. In some way, I think my mother was just happy to have someone on her side. I experienced depression and eating disorders for the first time at 12, and my mother was emotionally nowhere to be found. She had to have known this man was ruining mine and my sister's life. I felt so alone and afraid. To this day, I struggle with reverting to isolation. My sister and I were constantly pitted against each other. If her and I were playing or just talking like people do, my stepdad would take one of us away, find ways to brainwash us into shunning the other. Needless to say, he turned my mother against me too. My relationship with my sister is pretty non-existent. I see her often, but we're just not close. It makes me so sad because I feel that competitive mindset is forever ingrained in us that our relationship will never heal. As for my mom, I still feel anger towards her for not protecting me, but I've grown to have compassion for her because she had a terrible childhood and has many issues as a result. And to me, those are two two separate things. The, the fact that somebody had a terrible childhood and the feelings that have been left by their abuse or neglect towards us. And one doesn't cancel the other out. And it's not about making them feel punished. It's about us processing our feelings so we can stop punishing ourselves by living a life of isolation or fear of intimacy or just just living a small scared life any positive experiences with the abusers i don't remember much of my childhood vacations to the beach were fun before my parents separated darkest thoughts i'm scared i'll never find a man that i feel 100% comfortable to be myself with i'm scared that my fear of abandonment and rejection will never go away and i'll self destruct every single relationship I'm scared of being judged. I'm scared of being vulnerable. I hate that I'm so scared. I hide all of this so well. I don't think there is one person who has even truly known the real me. Darkest Secrets I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and I'm scared to death of fucking her up. Watching her with my partner is the most healing thing. They have the greatest father-daughter bond. I'm worried that I'm not enough for her and she'll see the way I think of myself even though I'm great at hiding it. I'm giving it my absolute all to be present for her and validate her feelings. 
Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Really open, vulnerable, passionate sex. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? I'm sorry for the all the horrible things I said to my sister. I love you and I want to get past all of our turmoil. What if you did say that to your sister? I'm sure that would be probably terrifying to do, but that might be really healing for the both of you or at least start a dialogue. What, if anything, do you wish for? To give my daughter the most unconditional love and to build solid friendships. Have you shared these things with others? No, but I plan to in the future. How do you feel after writing these things down? Overwhelmed. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are not alone. You are deserving of love. Don't give up. Ah, thank you for that. I love when I get to the end of a survey and the person has clarity on what they need to give themselves or what they need to do. And even though they haven't done it yet, it's it's in their mind. And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, I can only feel weird or neutral. And she writes, Two weeks ago, I woke up, and on my way to the bathroom, I was, as usual, welcomed by the voice in my head telling me, you are a piece of shit, and you should just kill yourself. Maybe you should have that as an alarm to go off and just have (laughs) an actor with a really deep voice say that. Or even worse, a middle school girl. Uh, I had been so used to having these thoughts first thing in the morning that I hardly even paid attention to them anymore. But this time, a new, much louder voice replied, Hey, don't you talk to yourself like that. This brain behavior was so new to me that I stopped in the middle of the hall, stumped. Later in the shower, I had a strong sense that I have changed and I'm not going back. I don't know what did it so radically and overnight. I like how I read this right after I was like, no changes happened overnight. And why I am only now seeing the results of three years of learning to decipher and allow feelings. But I look at myself in the mirror and it's still me, but it's also somebody different, somebody better and stronger. A week ago, I got some bad news about my business, and instead of getting depressed for a week, I cried for 15 minutes, then decided to go finish the things that I could control. Turns out, instead of wallowing in despair, I can make myself feel better by making other things happen. This would never have occurred to me, uh, to the old me. I used to fantasize about cutting myself because it seemed like reclaiming control of my feelings by making myself feel pain on demand and that it would give me relief. It wasn't until I learned to accept my feelings as a fact, with no judgment or shame, that I finally got that relief. I'm happy. And I don't even have to add, I'm puking in my mouth as I say this. Love it. Love it. Well, boy, we haven't done an episode this long in a while. We're 135 minutes. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, this this episode, the interviews, the surveys, and uh, I, I hope your New Year's resolu- resolution isn't uh, ridiculously unreachable. Mine is that uh, I'm going to fly to the moon and actually moonwalk on it. I think I can do it. 
Anyway, if you're out there and you're struggling, don't forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.